And it goes beyond the digital marketing, which is where most of the demand side tends to go to as well. And when you say you're digitizing your organization, just try to um, understand what the future may be offering you so you can get ahead of it. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam and Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. I have with me today Anton Vincent, who is the president of Mars Wrigley North America. Thank you so much, Anton, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm, I'm excited to be here and uh, a big fan of the school, and I'm uh, just really excited to talk to you and your audience today. Well, thank you. Uh, well, you know, when I look at your background, and I know many people recommended that I talk to you, uh, CPG people, I know that you have a lot of expertise in marketing, leadership, uh, transformational leadership, change management, those kinds of things. And uh, I'd love to chat with you about that today. But I know that you um, early on um, in your career started not not at the very beginning of your career, but you eventually were at General Mills um, in a marketing position. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. You know, when I uh, when I came out and I got my MBA at Kelly School of Business at Indiana University and um, had an opportunity to come to General Mills and, uh, you know, had had quite a long run at General Mills as well. So it was, you know, it's an incredible company, um, do things the right way, uh, but want to win, you know, so I, th I thought those values certainly worked for me, uh, which is part of the reason I was there for so long. Within General Mills, um, you also had you you rose through the ranks quickly. Um, you had experience in mergers and acquisitions, including uh, with the Pillsbury acquisition team. Um, but you also were president of the baking division, frozen frontier division, and the snack division. That's a that's a broad range of of experiences. Would you mind just chatting a little bit about how that prepared you? Uh, for the senior leadership position you have now, yeah, you know, I think one of the, one of the great things about companies like General Mills is that uh, it's a pretty broad-based uh, company. You know, we it, depending on how you construct the categories, you know, we competed in somewhere between fifteen and sixteen categories at one time. Uh, that was spread all around, primarily around the grocery store. So I think what that allowed you to do is to have very different experiences inside of the same company. Right. And it also helped you to really hone your leadership skills, moving from one type of business with a certain type of consumer to a different kind of consumer with a different kind of uh, consumer and maybe a different business model. And so I, I think the breadth of uh, not just the leadership, but just coming through the ranks as well, you know, coming through the ranks of a diversified company like that really prepares you to see a lot of very different business situations uh, it helps you to really have a great understanding around what does great teaming look like what does great leadership look like what does great followership look like and then how to perform in those different situations and so by the time you hit to be a president level where you have you know sort of true enterprise accountability you know you uh you know you you're, you're well you're well suited <laughs> to run an enterprise with a level of operational clarity and a level of strategic clarity um, that you can apply in the marketplace, you know, on behalf of, of that company as well. And so I, I felt like I was a general mills for 23 years and I felt like I just got the 
education of a lifetime, just, you know, with so many different and varied experiences as well. Well, I remember when General Mills bought Pillsbury from Diageo, because Diageo bought Pillsbury, it seemed like they didn't have them very long. Not very long, no. <laughs> and then they sold it to General Mills. And of course, I remember thinking, well, that's interesting because Pillsbury and General Mills are both in Minneapolis, the headquarters. But I wonder if that helps from a corporate culture perspective. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And certainly, you know, from a region and a value system, and I think there's a level of consistency in the Twin Cities if you ever lived there for any period of time. Well-run town, great people, you know, big white-collar town. You know, at one time we had upwards of 18 Fortune 500 headquarters in the Twin Cities, right? So it was a headquarter town. And therefore, you had a lot of great talent in town as well. But like you said, you know, even though you're in the same town, it doesn't necessarily mean you have the same culture. So we spent an incredible amount of time sort of making sure we understood what was great about Pillsbury, what was great about General Mills. And we didn't want to make we didn't never wanted to make the Pillsbury employee base feel like feel like they were acquired. Right. This is much more of a partnership and that, you know, we were better together as well. And just from a strategic perspective, you know, General Mills was a great company, but it was a couple of things we were missing at the time. You know, we didn't have a really a significant international footprint. We had a, I would say, a fledgling export business at the time, you know, two, three hundred million, maybe at, at, at its high. Um, we also didn't have a big exposure to what we call out of home, or what's classically called food service. Uh, as well. And then, you know, Pillsbury has some incredible brands. I mean, obviously the Pillsbury brand, you know, we bought Haagen-Dazs as a part of that as well. So we got into the ice cream business. And so that really helped us to really fill out our portfolio, uh, both in the U.S., but more specifically outside of the U.S. borders, uh, and also expanded our scope of activity outside of primarily sort of in-home products as well. And so it, it was really a big uh, transformational uh, acquisition for General Mills to really reset the company. Um, we felt like there was significant synergy in the deal, which you always want to have, but also there was significant growth as well, both in the U.S. and outside of our borders as well. And so, I, you know, I, I thought we did a really good job in, you know, sort of scoping and making sure the strategy was right. And then I always tell people, uh, you know, it's easy to buy a business. <laughs> the hard part is to make it work once you, once you acquire it. And yes. it, it took us some time. You know, we didn't we had to learn those businesses uh, because many of those businesses were categories that we had not competed in. And then what most people may not remember, um, you know, we essentially doubled the size of General Mills. We we're probably six and a half billion at the time. You know, on the back end of that portfolio, we we're probably 12, 13 billion. Uh, so the scope and the scale of the business, I mean, literally doubled overnight. And that's a very, very different leadership challenge, a very, very different communication challenge. And then again, making sure you're bringing back to your initial point, two pools of very talented uh, associates together. Uh, so we can be better together and really spending a lot of time on the on the culture piece on the integration piece and on learning because i would tell you the general mill side we had to really learn those pillsbury businesses and they were markedly different than what we had primarily had at general mills and of course the pillsbury folks had to learn general mills business as well and so it, it, it really was a combination but it was really a story and uh how do you bring two really high performing cultures together so that we're better together and i remember when they combined in northwest arkansas the the team serving Walmart, they combined the Pillsbury and General Mills team. And I could tell that you all had done a nice job of that kind of integration. And I remember the team leader after the acquisition was the team leader that was the team leader from Pillsbury. 
Yeah, you know, we and you know, we we had great had great teams at Walmart. We just found it was Alex Cornette who uh, ended up doing it. And you yeah. know, Alex Alex is incredible. I mean, you he's know, incredible. Yeah, I mean, he was just the kind of leader and just had the kind of customer intimacy that, Kenley, we thought we were very good at, and we were very good at, but he he had it at Walmart. I just got to tell you, <laughs> and I think that that became very evident to us, and it was important for us because, look, we want the best possible person, right? Uh, best possible leader. Alice was clearly that person, and also we wanted to send a signal to the Pillsbury employee groups that, hey, look, we're not. You know, we're not always sort of saying it's got to be General Mills people to get all the big jobs, at least immediately. And so I, I thought that was a great signal to be sending. And Alex did a fantastic job leading the team. That I, I really think that did send a signal. The, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, I've had a number of people that I've interviewed, CEOs, where they they didn't just stay in the same area. They They moved. And I know in your case, you could have just stayed in marketing, but you went over to M&A. And I, I just would think that that would be a very developing kind of an experience. It, it was. And, you know, it was interesting how that came about uh, was pretty interesting. You know, I, I, and most people don't know, but I, I left General Mills for, for a couple of years. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, be a part of an investor group to go and buy a, a restaurant franchise. So I, I was an Applebee's franchisee. And I, I left after about five years at General Mills, uh, you know, got a part of a group and uh, things moved very, very, very fast. And uh, next thing I know, I am my wife of two months. So I was like, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're about to go on this adventure together. And, uh, you know, eventually it was I always say it was a great business. It was a, it was a bad set of partners. And so that, it was pretty short lived. But, you know, I was asked to come back to General Mills. And uh, what, one of the things, you know, talking about leadership, one of the things I want to do is say, hey, look, I, you look, I, I had a great track record of General Mills at that time. Glad that people wanted me to come back. But I said, I just wanted to experience it from a different vantage point. That was very important to me. And I, I said, that was, that, was, that was my only requirement if I was going to come back that I do that. So I didn't want to go back into sort of running businesses directly, you know, not right away. And it just so happened um, that we were about to go public with uh, our offer to purchase the Pillsbury company. And uh, and I was asked to be a part of that acquisition team as well. So it was, you know, it was a blessing. It was great timing. And uh, you just got some really, really differential skills about, hey, just the strategy around when you decide to expand inorganically, i.e. via acquisition. And just all the machinations that have to go through, making sure the strategy is right, selling it through the board, and then really spending an incredible amount of time around integration and then getting the value out of the acquisition on the back end. And, uh, you know, I just think got the education in my lifetime. Um, and a big part of my job was helping on the core team, but also doing some stuff on the back end. There were a couple of provisions in that uh, particular acquisition agreement uh, that had some options around our ice cream business. Uh, we also were still trying to expand in the natural and organic space. We'd had a good base and we knew we were going to be doing more there as well. And so it really helped me to process the company um, in very long term contexts, as opposed to just operating the business on a day to day and obviously driving top line and bottom line results. Because I know you later then were involved in being president of the baking divisions. You've, you've been president of several divisions. And I would think baking, I'm just thinking about baking with respect to the acquisition, because Pillsbury had a lot of baking, you know, if you consider refrigerated dough. But of course, General Mills obviously did. Right. Was, was that division, did it, did it include both areas of baking or was it just General Mills? 
No, it, it, did, it did not. And, you know, you're asking a very important questions because whenever you start to put uh, portfolios together, you know, you got to ask yourself a lot of questions. And then one of those questions is, all right, look, what, what, like, where do we drive unique value? That's number one. And then how do we construct it in such a way that we can actually go and get that value? And then one of the decisions we made just first, we said that, hey, look, especially as a as a General Mills heritage, as we call it, it's like, look, we don't know these businesses. So let's make sure we actually kept those businesses together. Right. So we actually formed a Pillsbury division. And in that division, essentially, were all of the uh, I would say the lion's share of the Pillsbury business. There was a couple of ones that were not in there as well. And that's important because some years later, we decided to actually break it up <laughs> um, and really put it on a, uh, on a on a different kind of construct as well. And so as a result of that, I kept all of just what we call sort of the classic uh, General Mills baking businesses, which at time was primarily all of the Betty Crocker businesses. And then, you know, we were the largest uh, flour manufacturer. I think General Mills still is the largest flour manufacturer in, in the U.S., which are very large, very profitable businesses as well. And so uh, everything from all the Betty Crocker lines and, uh, you know, the cakes, the frostings, uh, the brownies, uh, the muffins, and it was all lying on those types of things. And then that included also the flower business as well. So those are very, very diverse businesses. Those are businesses that are really have a lot of exposure to agricultural cycles as well. And so I spent just as much time with my grain traders, <laughs> you know, as I did with my marketers, you know, being a president, because look, if you don't buy properly in an agriculturally based business, it can really do damage to your P&L. Right. And then force you to make some, you know, some pretty, pretty, pretty tough decisions as well. And so that was a very as my first president job, I, I, I loved it because it gave me the strategy and the enterprise piece as well. But it forced me actually to build some new skills in areas that I had not spent a lot of time on. And I actually had some experience in baking, but it was very, very, very early in my career. And I didn't I didn't touch a lot of the very sophisticated things that General Mills does, does continues to do on the trading and the commodity front as well. And so that that helped us to really understand how to drive value at sort of the beginning of the supply chain. And then that gave us a bit of a understanding around, all right, look, now how does that help us to build strategy as we start to enter the marketplace and start to market our finished products? You, you mentioned as president of the baking division being very engaged with uh, the procurement of grain on the one hand, but on the other hand, marking kind of the big picture and I remember how diligent General Mills was about making sure they knew exactly where their grain was coming from. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about we did some project, I think. Well, it was with it was with the uh, cereal, uh, ready to eat breakfast cereal area. Um, but he was explaining to me that you know, we have all kinds of sensors around to make sure that the water's good. There's no radiation in the air, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of things. And. But I thought, yeah, that's a that's a, a tricky business in some ways, especially when you've got inflation in commodities or uh, droughts. Yeah, it's two things. Well, first of all, you know, most most commodity businesses are global businesses, and so we have a global supply chain. Uh, we we needed that just because of the scale that we had as well. And then, you know, where it really gets to it is formulation, right? Because you know, while we were you know we're big grain acquirers, we we needed to make sure we had a certain spec. And those specs weren't available all around the world. And so you really need to understand your supply. You need to cultivate your supply. You need to have great global sourcing relationships so that you can get the kind of uh, grain that would actually fit your your, uh, your spec 
because that's what makes you different in the marketplace from from a product perspective. And so Phil was absolutely right in terms of making sure that there was an incredibly high level of clarity in terms of the relationships, uh, you know, making sure our sourcing circles were properly understood. We got the right level of investment and sometimes investing in actual suppliers uh, to make sure they were in a position to supply us regardless of what the economic situation was. And also, you know, you spend a lot of time understanding pricing and pricing models as well. And so really fully integrated, I would say, from that perspective, before you even got upstream and started to produce and market and so on and so forth. It's just I always tell people, you know, a lot of time how you build value is how you buy stuff. It's not how you sell stuff. If you don't buy it right, you don't have a margin structure to go and actually invest against it. So I'm always imploring students, you know, other leaders. It's like, man, you know, understand where your value is created. And it's not created the same in every company. It's not even created the same in every CPT company. But uh, boy, if you don't understand what that really looks like, or if you have a misperception around where that value is created or how that value is created in your company, you can really miss a lot of opportunity to perform on your P&L. I would imagine that skill that you honed on understanding the value proposition and the P&L must have really been helpful when you transitioned to being president of Mars Wrigley uh, yeah. North America, a new a new business. Yeah, no, it really is. And I, I think the one thing, one, the beautiful thing about Mars and one of the reasons that I, I decided to come to Mars was one of, you know, it's an incredible global business. You know, we're a private company and we don't quote numbers, but the one number is that, you know, we're a $45 billion company. Um, you know, we play in primarily three big segments. You know, it's the confection piece with the largest confectionery company in the world. We're also the largest pet care company in the world, you know, which includes pet nutrition. It includes our veterinary health services. It includes sort of technology between those two as well. Uh, so it and in and a, a food business as well. And so it's much more integrated than one would seem. But I think the global nature of it and then the scale on top of that global nature of it really sort of forces you to sort of process at a very high level, but still have the significant operational depth you need to have almost market by market uh, to make sure we can sort of push our, our, our business model forward. The pet business. Yes. That is interesting because, you know, you've been at Mars Wrigley pre-pandemic. Right. You, you joined in 2019. Right. But, and I'm no expert on the pet business, but from my reading of the Wall Street Journal and Barron's it seems to me that uh, the pet business exploded, <laughs> and 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 I think it's it's got to be because of your leadership at, at Mars Wrigley. Well, here, here's what I would say: uh, we have an incredible pet business. I mean, incredible. But also, most people don't know that uh, in the year of 2020, there were 11 million pet adoptions in the in, just in the U.S. alone. I mean, quote global numbers. So, what happens when you adopt a pet? You got to feed them. You got to give them health care. So what kind of business do we have? We have a nutrition business. We have a healthcare business. <laughs> so so I would say that um, that was, you know, it was already on trend. So it was what we call a tailwind category, meaning it's growing at a certain rate. But, you know, when the pandemic hit, I mean, it really put that business across the entire pet ecosystem just on just hyper speed as well. And I, I think the people who run that part of the business were very, very well positioned to take advantage of it as well. And now that we're on the backside of that big surge, you know, really continuing to grow in very interesting and innovative ways as well. I mean, it is really an impressive business. Yeah. And you're you're in the health pet health business. I, I've, I've read a little bit about that as well. And I know that uh, 
one of the big challenges there is just vets. There's a shortage. I think there's a shortage of vets. There's definitely a shortage of vets. And I think one of the things we're doing, you know, we're we're investing in veterinary, you know, health programs as well. I mean, like direct direct investment in schools, you know, helping get kids scholarships and things of that nature, because you're right, you know, there's the supply side of the veterinarian business is uh, is tough. And as someone who has, you know, and I, I still I believe this vet this, but I still think we're the number one employer of veterinarians areas in the United States, at least. And so, you know, clearly we need to be able to have a supply of those veterinarians to making sure they're taking advantage of all the opportunities that we have across our pet ecosystem. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many innovative things going on in the world around pet nutrition. And so, and even veterinary, like pharmaceuticals for, right. for pets. Uh, I know one of the, one guy that I interviewed on here a couple of years ago, is the CEO of um, VetSource, and they—they're—I think they were the first e-commerce company providing pharmaceuticals for pets. But I think that that company's grown a lot too. I think they have. Yeah, they have, and I think the one—you know—one thing about pets, and people have to understand, is just that uh, look, everything that human needs, for the most part, pets need. So you, you just have to think of all the things that we need. We need to feed ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. You know, we have to educate, you know, all those things that we have to entertain ourselves, you know, the, all those things that we need, you know, the, so so you have to think about it as truly an alternative ecosystem, right? And all the things that can happen within that ecosystem. You know, we happen to be big in the nutrition parts of it and in the, in the health, the pure healthcare parts of it. But you can imagine there's a lot of opportunities within that ecosystem for people to go in to build businesses. That's number one. Number two, I always tell people you, you can always you can always uh, have a good understanding around what's hot because there's usually a lot of money being raised, and usually in private equity or VC world, uh, to go and acquire assets. And uh, you know, if you sort of look at all the rigs on that, you know, that's a very interesting space where people are raising money, you know, because they see the growth. And where there's yeah. growth, there's going to be investment capacity to go after that growth and try to try to build something on the back of it as well. And so, so it's a very rich and very very robust space and um i don't know about you i'm an animal owner uh i treat my animals very good <laughs> and, and, mo and most pet you know most but we call them pet parents most pet parents will do anything for the animal oh, oh absolutely. absolutely i mean would do anything and so you know that you know as as a consumer and trying to attack them from a consumer perspective you know and as the marketer in me i you know i could have a field day with that <laughs> and uh, and we do but i you know i think we do it in very uh principal ways you know, we're really focused on that pet. We're really focused on the pet parents. We're really focused on really having that pet have an incredible experience. You know, our vision in pet is a better world for pets. You know, it's very simple, uh, but it's very powerful. And I think, you know, the, the pet side of the business is very united around that. And it's a very much of a 360 ecosystem, you know, to make sure that pet is having the best possible experience. And the pet parent, you know, is obviously in the middle of that as well. I'd love to hear a little bit about your philosophy around leadership. And I say that in the broad sense to include change management sure, and so sure. forth. And and also your approach uh, to, to leadership. Yeah, you know, I, I think, first of all, I, you know, I talk I talk to a lot of folks, uh, but particularly when I'm talking to sort of younger associates or younger professionals, you know, I think, you know, leadership is a thing. <laughs> it is not a title. Yes, uh, that's where I start, you know, first because they see, you know, they see titles, they see this and that and so on and so forth. And I was like, no, it's a thing. It is a really important set of capabilities that I think if you don't do it well, businesses suffer. So it, it should be taken incredibly seriously. I think for me, you know, I start off with trying to set a high standard of performance. That's first and foremost. 
you know, and a part of sort of the ex-athlete in me, I was student, you know, student athlete in college, and you know, we we we're here to do great things, and we're here to win. And so a lot of that is mindset driven. We don't want to cut corners. We don't want to do things we're not supposed to do, but we got to have an objective that is always pushing us and always pushing the organization. I mean, to me, that is the lifeblood. That is the energy, you know, around leadership. And and that's not to say that everybody can't do that, but leadership sets the tone. So I absolutely believe that leadership sets the tone. I think the second thing, uh, you know, for me around leadership is just around consistency. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where, where doing good is great, but doing good consistently is better <laughs> and it's and it's differential you know whether you're a public company or private company it, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference so just making sure that we have consistency in our performance we had a consistency at a high level and i think the third thing is really around just talent management talent development uh you know you know i've, I've had a nice long career and i think you know i think the heartbeat of any company of any organization is how are you developing your pipelines you know, how, how are you spending time in identifying the leaders of tomorrow? How are you setting the example? How are you making sure that when all of us are going doing something else, that the enterprise is well stocked, that it's real ready for all the future things that we spent our time planning for? And I think that's really, 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 really critical. And I think the last thing for me, I think just the fourth thing is just around a little bit akin to the, the third one. It's just around diversity and inclusion. Uh, and not because I'm an African-American leader. It's just uh, I, I don't think you can be a serious leader regardless of size and scope of your business without really understanding around how to get the most out of every uh, professional in this case uh, that you that you've been asked to lead as well uh, and and that that transcends race that transcends gender and so on and so forth and so just making sure that there is a a, a bit of a focus and connection around making sure that you are really trying to help every associate every employee self-actualize. And that's just always been my foundation, uh, because I think if you do that, you you really are creating tomorrow's leaders, you're creating performance consistency, and you're doing it. I think with a set of principles, certainly here at Mars, that we can be proud of. Anton, it seems that um, what leaders are being asked to do today, especially leaders like yourself of global companies that um, that are well known, um, you know. Your your scope has changed a lot over the years, but I'd love to know how has it affected your approach to leadership? Yeah, I think it's affected my 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 approach uh, in a couple of ways. And, I, and you know, I laugh when I say this, but I think we all you will recognize this when I say it. We're all supply chain experts today. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's true. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your primary function is. Your primary domain. I just think uh, one of the beautiful things that COVID in particular has done is forced leaders, enterprise leaders, to truly be more enterprise. Now, you know, I came up on the demand side and marketing sales, so on and so forth. And so that I got that down cold, understand that. But I think it's really forced us to really understand our business models and to really start to try to bulletproof our business models. You know, because I came up in the, you know, on the education side, you got to have a moat and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, conceptually, that's still true. Uh, but, you know, barriers to entry are very low for most businesses now. Um, most of us have a global supply chain. Uh, so what happens in other parts of the world has a very, very direct impact on what I'm able to do with my business. And so that has forced me to sort of take my attention far afield sometimes to make sure that I'm understanding that and giving a direction around that as well. And then I just think the second piece is, you know, we've all uh, been talking about the digital revolution, and uh, I always say, I always tell people that the uh, the two most overused words in business are innovation and digital. 
<laughs> you know, uh, don't get me wrong, they're real and they're relevant. And trust me, we all, we all spend a lot of time on those things. But uh, but digital, I would say, just as an idea is such a transforming concept. And it goes beyond the digital marketing, which is where most of the demand side tends to go to as well. When you, when you say you're digitizing your organization, when you're trying to be a data and analytics foundation, so that gives you an opportunity to actually see better, to sense better, to try to um, understand what the future may be offering you so you can get ahead of it. You know, those are those are transformational types of concepts that I still think we're just at the beginning of at this point. And so I think as a leaders, you know, we're spending a lot more time on that. And I think the third thing, particularly if you're a global leader, you know, uh, regulation. Uh, you know, what you're allowed or not allowed to do in certain countries, uh, how those regulations are changing, how they're actually forcing you to change your business model. Um, I know me, I spent a significant amount of time on that. And, uh, you know, I, I lead a lot of the regulatory activity here for U.S. And uh, there is a lot that, you know, that could be a full time job on its own. Now, clearly, we have people to have government relations, so on and so forth. But um, but that's, you know, that's your right to operate. That's your ability to operate. As, as a business model, as a legal entity. And it's important that you really understand what's moving in that environment and that you have the, you know, the appropriate understanding, uh, the appropriate attention, um, and the appropriate activity and working with that, that network of activity that happens both politically, socially, and then you know, from a trade association perspective as well. So I would say those are the big three things um, that have changed and I, and I think it's sort of forcing our enterprise leaders to make sure they really understand where they want to prioritize their time. Boy, that, and you see it, so much like with um, just the attention that's being given to ESG on so many boards. And speaking of which, uh, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, uh, but you also have experience as a board member yeah. on a publicly traded company, uh, International Paper. Have you Are you seeing that as something that is being talked about a lot more? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, not only being talked about, and Kelly companies are always talked about. It just has a name now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that that has always been an activity. But also, you know, what's what's really es escalated. And you see, you know, you see this all the time when the investment community starts to get in serious about it. That forces, particularly publicly held companies, to you know, to get very serious about it as well. Because what they're saying is, hey, look, if I don't have a really good understanding of this, I'm I am going to make decisions about where I place my capital. Um, based on those things. And so I think it's forced, you know, chief executives also forced boards and, and leadership teams uh, to make sure that A, that they have a plan and move on that plan. And now it's probably two, I mean, more importantly, that is well communicated. Because like I said, you know, companies are not coming at this from a standing start, uh, particularly on a sustainability perspective. And so I think that has made almost every publicly held company really ramp up their game in terms of what that looks like. Um, and I know boards and our board is really holding leadership accountable uh, to make sure that we have, you know, an opportunity to sort of push our business model forward in the right way. So, Anton, um, in closing, do you have any advice for students that might be graduate, whether it be they be undergraduates or graduate students? Uh, they're getting ready to enter the workforce or maybe they're even earlier at their time in, in school. Um, but uh, but they're what advice might you have? Yeah, you know, I have a couple of pieces of advice and, you know, and this is probably for the students that are still in school. It's just um, one of the things that uh, and I, and I like what certain schools are doing now in terms of diversifying their majors. You know, I know when I came to school, I was a finance major undergrad and look, I took a lot of finance class, you know, finance and accounting classes. But I just think, you know, really understanding the full value chain of a business is just probably more important today than it has ever been. 
And so I would say really take a hard look at those electives. You know, go, go. I always tell people, go a bit far afield. You know, if you're a finance major, you know, do, do something in supply chain, do something in operations, because uh, particularly if you make a physical product, look, you will be hand in glove with your manufacturing and supply chain side of your business. Uh, so I would say be diverse in terms of how you're putting your electives together, maybe even be diverse in terms of what types of internships that you might uh, do. You know, you got it. You got a couple of summers, maybe three summers in college. You know, jump around. You know, if you want to try something here, try something there. And then, you know, you'll find, you know, what you think you have passion for. I think that'll reveal itself, particularly to the business major. So I think that's one. And I think the second thing is just this whole concept of leadership. One of the things I always tell early professionals is leadership, again, is not a title, right? Uh, you separate your functional and your domain expertise from what leadership looks like. And you know how it works. We see leadership in people before they have the title. <laughs> like we oh, understand, yeah. yeah, we understand how they process information, how do they build teams, how do they push back, what does a courage level looks like, how do they see the future from the present? And so I'd say just make sure you have a really good understanding of what leadership means to you and start displaying that immediately. I always tell people you want to be a leader before you get the title. Right. That that's that's what leadership is looking for. Because part of my job. And part of people's jobs, like me, is to determine who's going to be sitting in these seats in the future. Well, Anton, this has been a really uh, enjoyable and insightful conversation. Uh, I know you're extremely busy, so thank you for taking time to to visit with me. Very much appreciated. No, thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C.